Thank you, Hugh. Um, Please, if you have a church Bible, open it to page 1174, um, Book of Ephesians, continuing looking through this amazing letter. We're going to be looking at chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 1 through 10, page 1174 on the church Bibles. This is uh, really amazing stuff tonight, Uh, far more amazing than the prospect of going to Russia. And please, nobody tell me the scores after the, ma- after the service, not the match. Um, just before we dive in, it's, it's worth remembering that Ephesians 2 was not a standalone thing, that it is written in a context, and it's written to real people who are dealing with real situations. We've been saying that the church in Ephesus was a small church that existed in a large city, a church that was facing conflict, a church that was very much on the periphery of Ephesian society because the Ephesian church lived in the shadow of two mighty superpowers that dominated Ephesus, the Roman Empire and the pagan religion of Artemis. Artemis was a, was a Greek goddess and in the center of Ephesus, uh, much like in the center of Edinburgh, there was a hill with a, uh, instead of a castle, it had a temple upon it, uh, a magnificent temple one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And we read in Acts 19 that that many of the early converts to Christianity, that the people who made up this church were people who were at one time involved in Artemis worship, and they were involved in all sorts of pagan and occult practices. But now they have come out of that, and they're part of this church, and a church that in comparison to everything else looks very small and weak. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage these believers to to stand firm in the gospel. These believers who are feeling small and weak, these believers who are facing conflict because they are cultural outsiders. And what we've been saying is that, that what Paul does in the first three chapters of Ephesians is just remind the church of who they are in Christ. He he paints this magnificent portrait of what the church of Jesus really is. We saw in uh, chapter 1 that that great introduction of praise where Paul celebrates the fact that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And in light of that, last week we saw how Paul prayed for this church. He prayed not that, that they would get something new, but he just prayed that they would know God better. They would know Him, and they would know what what He has given them. And as he finished that prayer, he, he reminded the Ephesians that there's a great power at work in this church. The real power is not in Rome. The real power is not in, in the temple of Artemis, but it's in the church of Jesus. And as we come now to chapter 2, what Paul is going to do in this chapter is he's going to elaborate further on what that power is. What's the power that's at work within the church? You'll remember from chapter 1 verse 10 that that God's plan for the whole world is that everything should be united under the rule of King Jesus. Well, God's power in the church is seen in how He accomplishes that plan. It's done in two ways in chapter 2. Firstly, we see the power and how God unites us to Jesus. That's chapter 2, verse 1 to 10 that we're going to read. And we see the power and how God unites us to one another. That's the rest of chapter 2 that we'll look at at some other point. 
So, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the great power that unites us to Jesus tonight. Uh, And there's one word, I think, that just sums all of this up. Grace. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Grace. Let's read it. Ephesians 2. This is what Paul says to this church. As for you, Ephesian Christians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Just three simple points tonight. Who we once were apart from grace. Secondly, who we now are because of grace. And thirdly, why? Why did God do it? Who we once were, who we now are, and why did God do it? Firstly then, who we once were. If we're to understand how amazing grace is this evening... Uh, We need to do what Paul does here in Ephesians 2. We need to begin, as Paul begins here, by looking at what we were like without grace. What is it that, that we have been saved from? And let me just say that the first three verses of chapter 2 are, are so dark. And some of you may be here this evening, maybe even the first time in a church, and, and you might even find some of this quite offensive. Because this picture that Paul paints for us in in these first three verses is a picture of every single human being that has ever existed. This is a picture of mankind without Jesus, and it's utterly hopeless. This is how God viewed us, apart from grace. Verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. Not physically, obviously. The the Ephesian Christians weren't weren't physically dead prior to becoming Christians, but spiritually, in God's eyes, they were spiritually dead. We are dead in the sense that that we don't naturally listen to God, that we give no thought to Him, we won't obey Him, we, we don't care about Him, we just live for ourselves, and that's everyone. doesn't matter if you're very religious or not, you have no more love for God than a corpse has for a living person. Paul's saying you, you aren't disposed towards God or you aren't close to God because you did lots of good deeds. Without Jesus, you are dead to God. 
spiritual cadavers. Why? Because we're all sinners, dead in our sin and transgression. Our hearts are fundamentally wicked, and they're imprisoned in this rebellion against God. In other words, the, the, the problem with, with this world is it's not out there. It's not, it's not something that's out there, but it's inside all of us. The problem is the fact that we are dead in our sins and transgressions. In verse 1 to 3, Paul's going to expand and show what that looks like and just how dire our situation is. This, these, these verses are, are painfully exposing. This was you without Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus now, this is a description of you. Painfully exposing. And, and you know, especially because I think in our age of, of social media, we, we love to present an image of ourselves that, that maybe is not quite honest. That's why if you spend too much time on, on Facebook, it's very depressing because what, what is Facebook but a false portrayal of myself that I want the world to see? It's not real. Paul's going to tear back the facade. Let's see the truth about the human heart. And it is dark, but it's dark not so that, that it will lead us into introspective despair. It's dark so that we can see the, the glorious light of the grace of Jesus Christ shine against its backdrop. So our deadness in sin, the, the Ephesians' deadness in sin, our deadness in sin, it was seen in three different ways. Now think of these things kind of like, like three prison guards or, or three chains that, that bound us and that blinded us to God. Three chains of our own making that once held us captive. They are the world, the devil, and the flesh. That's what it looks like to be dead in your sins. These are the three things that we used to follow. Firstly, the world. Look at verse 1. You were dead in your transgression and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. What he means here is that, that one of the signs that you're, you're spiritually dead to God is you don't follow him, but rather you follow what everyone else is doing round about you. Your values, they are shaped by society. And in many ways that you can see that that would make sense, wouldn't it? You're going to be influenced by what's around you. But the problem is, Paul's saying that, that, that we, are, we are captives to our culture. In other words, we don't let God, the one who is infinitely good, the one who is the creator of all, we don't let him determine what is right. Rather, we let our culture determine what is right. So if you were in Ephesus, if you were an Ephesian, chances are you'd probably be into the occult. You might be into pagan worship. You, you would go to the temple of Artemis because it's what everyone did. If you're in Scotland, you would have a different set of values that will be totally different. And yet it's funny because we'll be determined that our cultural values are right. And the problem is, though, that, that, that cultural values are always changing. They, they change depending on what culture you live in, and, and they change depending on when you're living. The ideas that we have today, which we think are um, progressive, in, in 60 years' time, people will probably look back on them as being archaic and regressive. So, how do we know what's right? We're slaves blindly following the ways of the world. God's views on sex, marriage, work, life, 
death, morality. People won't follow that because, because we're dead to him. And it's just easier to do what everyone else is doing. Look, we might, we might not worship Artemis, but we do live in a culture full of idols. God is replaced with relationships, with family, with money, with work, with our own selfish desires. And what we might see as normal, God sees as treason. So we're captive by the world. Secondly, though, we are also held captive by the devil. Look at uh, verse 2, and you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's one of the the New Testament ways of speaking about the devil. Uh, And they talk about air, I guess, because uh, air is everywhere. And the truth is that the evil influence of the devil is everywhere. So he's saying, you Ephesian Christians, you don't realize, but at one time, you were in league with the devil. Behind all those who disobey Jesus is is a darker, more sinister force. And I guess uh, for the Ephesians, they probably didn't need convincing of this. Remember, most of them had had kind of come out of a practice of occult worship. In fact, in Acts 19, we're told that that when they joined this church, they all brought their magic scrolls and stuff together and burnt them. But the influence of the devil is not just seen in those who were once cultists. Look at what Paul says. It's all who disobeyed. See, when you disobey God, whether consciously or not, you are in league with the ultimate evil, lurking in the background he was there, and yet lurking so covertly. Remember that line, famous line from The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. No, he's, he was active. Whenever people ignore God, whenever people live for themselves under the false guise of autonomy, they don't realize that they are not free in what they are doing, but they are slaves to the ultimate enemy of God. The lies that we see him spread in the Bible, we we can see so often echoed in others. He portrays God as as a cosmic killjoy. He seeks to undermine God's word. He downplays God's character. He is not this abstract idea, but a real terrifying personal force who at one time, before you were a Christian, at one time had held you captive. Thirdly and finally, we are held captive to our selfish desires. Look at what Paul says here. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So it can be tempting to think off the back of that. Well, if it's the culture and if it's the devil, then it's not really my fault, even though Paul says that we actively follow these things. And he knows that's not true. You see, our our blindness to God, our deadness in our sin was a a self-made prison in many ways because fundamentally we are captive to our cravings. We chose to live for ourselves over God before we came to follow Jesus. We, We demoted God and we promoted ourselves. If there was a God, then we thought he should be helping me. He should act how I want him to act. And we put ourselves on the throne 
If we have a craving, we'll, we'll satisfy it our way, like a, like a thirsty man lapping up salt water. We feed our cravings of, for sex through promiscuity or pornography. We feed our cravings for comfort through a pursuit of wealth and money and greed. We feed our cravings for self-worth through a, a tireless pursuit of acceptance. We feed our cravings for self-exaltation through the gossip and the slander of others. We're slaves. And here's the thing. If you're a person who seeks to gratify the cravings of the flesh, do you know that can often mean you're quite a good person? You see, if you love yourself, you'll want to do good. Why? Because it makes you feel good, and it'll make you feel better, and it'll make you feel superior to others. Morality, morality can often be a great disguise for selfishness. Now, let's be very careful. Verse 1 to 3, there's no finger pointing here. Uh, remember, this, this is Paul speaking to Christians. This is him saying, this is what you were once like. This is as far from arrogant as you can get. Because look at verse 3. Who does Paul include in this, this dreadful diagnosis? All of us. No matter who we are, all of us were at one time bound this way. Including Paul himself. Paul, that, that good, religious, moral man. He was a religious person, but all he was doing in reality was just gratifying his selfish desires. That's what he says. We were dead in our transgressions. We were dead in our sins. And brothers and sisters, how did God feel about these blatant acts of rebellion? Because ultimately, in all of that, and everyone's like this, and all of this, there is one person who is offended the most by this, and it is God himself. How does he feel about this? Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Please know this. Please know this. God owes you one thing only, and it's judgment. God owes humanity one thing, wrath. We deserve wrath. Our self-made slavery deserves judgment. So let me ask you tonight, follower of Jesus, do you believe that? Or do you think that, that God somehow owed you something more? You see, grace will never be amazing unless you can see how wretched you are without Jesus. This is your life. And if you're here tonight and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what the Bible says of you. You see, the biggest problem you have is not your finance or your relationships or, or your job or your family, as important as these things are. If you don't have Jesus, the biggest problem in your life is that God's angry with you. It's not comfortable. It's like going to the doctor and finding out that the, the diagnosis is much worse than you thought. Now, we can ignore that diagnosis, but it will catch up with us. But this is not the end. <laughs> Just the first three verses. We need to see that so that we can marvel at what's about to come. Christian, that is who you were, verses 1 to 3. But do you want to know the power of God, the incomparably great power that has been working in your life? Well, this is who you now are. 
second point, who we now are because of grace. Everything changes in verse 4, doesn't it? There's this wonderful news for all those who come to Jesus, and it begins with two words in verse 4, two words that that change everything, that, that radically reverse everything. But God. Let me read it. That's the ESV translation. Let me read the ESV translation of verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You want to know the power what did God do to hellbound sinners like you and me who deserve nothing but His wrath? Did He give us what we deserve? No, not if you follow Jesus, because His mercy is unbelievably rich. His love is so all-encompassing. His compassion is so limitless that He decided to completely reverse who we were. In His incomparably great power, He took us who were dead and chose to make us alive in Christ. You see, the moment you turn to Jesus, maybe you can't even remember that moment. Maybe it's as long as you've remembered. But the moment you turn to Jesus and you said, sorry for your sin, and you turn to Him, everything was radically reversed. This is the gospel. All the anger for all the wrong that that we have ever done has been dealt with. Jesus deals with that on the cross. We deserve wrath, like Paul says, but Jesus, the perfect Son of God, He takes that wrath on Himself. He takes our punishment so so that we can have His status He suffers for us so that that this spiritual cadaver could be resuscitated back to life, so that we could be awakened to our Maker, so that we could be made alive in Christ. You see, do you know, if you just trust in Jesus, not only are all your sins forgiven, but you become part of Jesus Himself, grafted into Him. The word in Christ is used all the time in Ephesians. So just as Jesus is alive to God, we become alive to God. That means that we do care about God now. That that the concerns that Jesus has start to become our concerns. No longer are we dead. We, We want to live for God now. We want to desire a God who we previously cared nothing for and the perfect life that Jesus lived, He has given to us. And I know, I know like me, when we are going through verses 1 to 3, did you not feel that I still get attracted by those things? The world, the devil, and the flesh, I still feel that pull on my heart. Well, it's because you're still a sinner, and you always will be. But the difference is you're not a slave to sin. You are not captive by these things. It's as if the the prison door is wide open. The chains have been breaking off. And although we might struggle to leave the darkness of our cells, it's always open. Free from sin. 
free from the condemnation that our sin deserves. We are not children of wrath. If you're a follower of Jesus, God is not angry at you. You are not a child of wrath. You're a child of God. And when you start to to see this, when you start to see, but this is who I am, and this is what he's done for me, then, then what should be going through your head is, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve it. Too right you don't deserve it. Paul inserts a little break in in his sentence in verse 5, just so that we'll be clear on that point. This transformation happened by grace, not because we earned it. See how amazing this is. I mean, you couldn't get more different to go from dead in sins to being alive in Christ, to being an object of wrath and a child of God. It's like this. Um, I got this illustration from a guy called Richard Coken. He, he's wrote an amazing book on Ephesians. It's called Ephesians for You. Well worth getting. But he talks about, imagine you, you had children. Some of you don't need to imagine because you've got kids. But imagine your kids are at that age of dating and the fateful day comes when they bring the boyfriend or the girlfriend home. Um, depending on what they are like, you probably would over time accept that boyfriend or that girlfriend into your family, depending on what they're like. But what if they were abusive or dismissive or violent, hurtful towards you or your child? You would never accept them. You'd never let them into your house. But don't you see that's us? Don't you realize that we have abused God's kindness? We deserve wrath. And what did God do? Not only did he say, I forgive you. Not only did he send his son, who he loves with such infinite love that we can't comprehend. Not only did he send him to be tortured for us, but he raised us to life with him and made us alive in Jesus. He makes us like Jesus. He makes us his treasured possession, accepts us as his beloved son. That is what grace is. And this grace goes just, it's way beyond forgiveness. Look at verse 6. What does it mean to be united to Jesus? You're alive. What else? You have been raised with Jesus. It's as if Jesus is leading the way in his resurrection and, and all the followers will follow in his wake. Guaranteed victory. In fact, so guaranteed that that Paul's speaking here in the past tense as if it's already happened. Check this out. There's more. Check it out. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So he's forgiven you your sin. He's made you alive to God. He's raised you, given you the resurrection power of Christ. And he has and he will seat you at the right hand of the Father. The throne of honor. It's like when you get to the the heavenly banquet, the heavenly wedding feast, you're not coming as a guest. You're sitting at the head table. You and me, wretched, messed up sinners that we are. And if you saw my heart, you probably wouldn't want anything to do with me. I, I, I don't think you would. And yet God sees all of it and it's poisonous, sinful nature, and it offends him more than anyone. And yet in his grace, he broke the chains of the world, the flesh, and the devil, 
and he brought this corpse to life and seated him in glory. Now, are you starting to see what Paul means when in chapter 1, verse 19, he says there's an incomparably great power at work in the church? Final point. Why? Much briefer. Time's done. Why? And the question you think when you start to mull over this as a Christian, if you're thinking about this, is why? Why would God save someone like me? Two reasons. Firstly, God saved you by his grace, not to make much of you, but so that it would make much of him. Verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, our salvation as Christians is nothing to do with us. This is what Christianity is about. It's what separates Christianity from every other worldview, every other religion that has ever existed. It's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done. This is a gift. You don't earn gifts. Imagine if, um, uh, if I had just saved up for ages to buy um, Kyrene, my wife, uh, a beautiful priceless necklace. Imagine that I worked tirelessly and, and I sacrificed a lot just so that she could have it. Can you imagine that if I, if I gave that to her and her response was, oh, that's great. How, how much do I owe you? And yet as Christians, we often treat God like that because we're proud. What do I owe you? We feel we, we, we better give something to earn it. And grace is hard to accept. Because grace means accepting the fact that we contribute nothing, just our sinfulness. If there was even a tiny bit we could give to this, then God wouldn't get all the glory, but, but I would get some of the glory. If it was even just a tiny bit down to me and, and all the things that I have done in becoming a Christian, then I get some of the glory. And that would make me arrogant. But Ephesians 2 strips away my pride and it throws me to the background and instead it brings the incomparable riches of His grace and His kindness to the front. This is not about what we do. Rather, it's about what He has done and that frees you so much. Grace liberates us because it frees us from ourselves to take our eyes off ourselves and onto Him. I love the word that Paul uses, that he uses here, incomparable riches. Isn't that great? God's not like us. You see, even the, the kindest of you here, uh, even if you accept someone who has wronged you so much, even if you do accept them, there's still a, a degree of trepidation, a, a degree of kind of begrudgingness. But there's no begrudging acceptance of the one whose grace and whose kindness is incomparably rich. Remember that benediction? We, we read it all the, all the time at the end of the service. That benediction at the end of Jude where, where it says that Jesus presents us sinners. He presents us before the throne of God as holy and blameless. And get this, with great joy. Oh, it gives Christ joy 
to present sinners as holy and blameless before his Father's throne. It gives him joy because it shows his greatness. It praises the mercy and the kindness of his Father. What boast can we possibly have? Christian, if you are being arrogant at all, or if you are looking down on anyone, on anyone, and you've forgotten the power of grace, this is what the whole gospel's about. And the second reason why God did this, and just we'll finish, the second reason's there in verse 10. God saved us by grace so that we could be his workmanship. The incomparable power of grace transforms the dead to life so that they can do what is good. You see, the good works of the gospel of grace, that the, the good works of the gospel of grace produces so different to the good works that those who, who gratify the, the sinful desires of the flesh do in verse 3. Because grace should produce a, a true selflessness. It's, it's the only, honestly, it's the only thing that can. And so rather than doing good to make me feel better, or rather than doing good to make me feel superior to others, grace wants me to do good because God is good. He has been so kind to me. And when you understand how kind He has been to you, you want to treat others with kindness, especially if they don't deserve it. See, your purpose as a Christian, this is your purpose to show the kindness of God by walking in a way that is pleasing and good to Him. Your purpose is to do good. And we'll see in Ephesians 4 just the magnitude of what those good works are. So where is the power? Where is the power in Ephesus? The power's not on the facade of Rome or Artemis. Where are they today? The power's in the church. The wonderful transforming power of grace, the life-giving power that has united us to Christ Jesus, that has resuscitated us back to God, a power that causes us to sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Let's pray. Father, your grace is amazing. What boast do we have? We cannot boast in our works, for we have not been saved by our works, but by your grace. Father, why? We were so wretched in your eyes. We offended you and hurt you so much. Can't even fathom how wicked we are. And yet, Lord, we can't even fathom how loved we are. Because despite that, you made us alive in Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. That it brought this dead spiritual cadaver back to life. You've raised us with Christ. And you've seated us with Christ. And our righteousness, our acceptance before you sits now at your right hand in the person of Jesus. Father, that's amazing. That is amazing grace. Please forgive us for when we don't find it amazing. 
please forgive us for when we subtly think that maybe we did deserve this. Help us see the truth so that we do not boast in ourselves, but we boast only in the cross of Jesus, our Savior. May your kindness and mercy, may your grace be pushed to the forefront of our lives. May we be in the background and may we do what is good in your eyes. May we do what you have prepared in advance for us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to finish by singing.